I'm Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest this week is political reporter for Fairfax Media and former United States correspondent Matthew Knott. Matthew Knott, thank you so much for joining us on the Minimal Podcast today. No worries at all, it's a pleasure. Mate, I'm very aware of your work and I do want to de- delve into, you know, how the foundations that were laid. And I want to know, how does someone from Newcastle, uh, you know, get the writing bug to become a journalist? Where, where did that spring from? Was it somebody who influenced you or did you always have the aspirations for it? That's a really good question, yeah. Um, I think like a lot of people would say it comes from your family. I think in my case, that was definitely my mom when I think about it. Uh, she was a librarian and a school teacher and was and is an avid reader. So there were a lot of books around. I was reading from a young age and took inspiration from her and really loved reading from a young age. Uh, my parents lived in Newcastle, but we did get the Sydney Morning Herald uh, delivered every day. You know, that was what shaped our worldview. This was even before the internet. Mm. It was whoever was the opinion columnist of the Sydney Morning Herald. That was what you were discussing uh, that day. So that's the world I grew up in and absolutely loved it and uh at some point, I started realizing I was very interested in journalism and world events and current events, you know, not uh, just uh, novels and fiction writing. And so I did an internship at the Newcastle Herald uh, in year 10. And that was basically when I decided, oh, this is absolutely the career for me. And what was it? Was it the, the fast-paced environment? Was it sort of like lack of, you know, is there, is there um, having never worked for a newspaper, is there a, a sort of lack of managerial oversight where you can just go off and follow leads? And is it that romantic ideal? Is that, does that exist? Is that what it's like? I think it is the excitement. I said the excitement of not knowing necessarily what is going to happen every day and, you know, the lack of routine in it really. Mm-hmm. And the fact that every day it's fresh, uh, things pop up, a different story, you're sent out to go and cover one thing and the next day it's something else and it appears in the paper so quickly, you know, when you get a reaction to your story, it's, it's very addictive even from a young age, the fast-paced nature of it and the diversity of it. For those of us who aren't inclined towards any kind of routine, I think it's a very good fit. Yeah, and so you know, naturally, you've you you, uh, you walk the path. You you do your, your communications degree. Um, uh, how did uh, an opening into the sort of world of Fairfax and political reporting uh, reveal itself to you? Yeah, it was an interesting path. Uh, yeah, I studied uh, journalism and international studies at UTS. Uh, which was and still is one of the best places to go to do journalism. And uh, I was doing a lot of uh, internships. I remember my first year of uni at the end of the year, I I quit my cafe job over the summer and went and did various regional internships. I remember staying at, I think, a $20 a night pub in Taree, to do, uh, I think, a couple of weeks at the Manning River time. Cool. I went to I went to Kempsey and did an internship there. I did some back in Newcastle. Uh, and then after that, 
I developed quite a portfolio, you know, quite mm. quickly to get all those bylines that you wouldn't even get at a big publication and you're very accountable at a regional paper. So mm. I think that was a great thing to have. Um, then I started working at uh, the Australian while I was at uni, uh, went over to live in Spain for a while and I came back and my first real job was inside the Crikey Umbrella uh, at a publication that was called The Power Index. It mm. sadly no longer exists, but it was very exciting. Its mission was to explore and uncover the way power works in Australia. And it was looking at influential people in different fields. Uh, we would do top 10 lists, but then do profiles around 800 words of the most influential people, say trade unionists or media commentators, politicians, business people. And that was my first real job. Mm. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. You know, it ended up, the, the financial side of the business didn't stack up and it ended up getting folded into Crikey. But I loved it. Paul Barry was the main journalist, yeah. you know, the legendary journalist, the media, media watch. So I was learning from him at the time. And I loved that that in some ways, I think it still shapes the way I think about it, which is who's powerful, you know, not necessarily who's making the most noise, but what's really going on beneath the surface, who matters. And the fact it was profile writing and not just news writing, I'm really glad that's how I started my career. And why do why did you feel the need to continue your education in the United States? What was the tip-off there? Because uh, I note that you studied at um, NYU School of Journalism there. Is that correct? At Columbia. Columbia. My mistake. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. What, was the, no, no. what was the impetus there? Yeah, I heard about it. It's, so it does have a very famous a reputation. I've been to New York, I think, in 2011. So even then, I was, it was only my first year or two in journalism, but I made a point of dragging my family up to Morningside Heights, mm. where the university is. Up, it's up near Harlem, um, very much in the Upper West Side of New York, to have a look around and just poke around the journalism school and see what what was going on. Mm. So at some level, it had already been implanted in my brain there. Then I went back to New York for holidays a few years later and went and visited and checked it out and started seriously thinking about it because it was just my dream to go and study there to live in New York. I was a bit of a New York romantic and wanted to spend time there. Sure. But then the thing that definitely accelerated that and to actually make it happen was when Donald Trump was elected quite surprisingly, you know, against the odds. Mm. I thought, well, now would be the perfect time to go to America. You're about to turn 30. Uh, this is the time to go and live in New York, study and try and stay in America to be part of this fascinating so, moment in history. So, you, you, so yeah, I mean, how did that process start off? So you were obviously the United States correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald for Fairfax based over in Washington and New York. Did you have a discussion with the paper about, um, you know, a, a, an ambition to go over there or were you, on a, were you just happenstance on a short list of people who would be selected? How does that process work where you get the tap on the shoulder to go and represent the paper over there? 
No, it, it, mine was quite unusual. It's not the way it usually works. It was definitely a case of right place at the right time. I know when I went over to study, uh, we had someone doing the job uh, full time. There was already essentially a correspondent there. Uh, Paul McGo, who was the chief international correspondent, was doing it full time. And I was studying, so I was keen to stay, but I took a year's leave of absence to go and study, which I was lucky to get. And I didn't know what would happen at the end of it if I would come back to Australia. I was definitely keen to try and find a way to stay in America to cover the election. It just so happened that by the time I was finishing up the degree, uh, Paul wasn't working for the paper anymore, so there was a vacancy. Mm. Uh, It hadn't been filled. So, uh, yeah, James Chessel, the executive editor, who's now uh, head of publishing at our company, he said, well, you're there. Do you, I get the sense that you want to stay. Do you want to do it for a while? And yeah, so I just kind of stepped in and did it. At first, it wasn't permanent, but it was eventually uh, made wow. you know, into a permanent role. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's, it's a bit different usually. Well, it's dream come it, true, right? Exactly. So it was definitely right place at right time. Yeah, usually it's something that gets advertised internally, you know, people in Sydney and Melbourne and Canberra. That did happen. Eventually, but yeah, I am. I was glad that I was able to do it. Probably a little bit younger than you often would, right? Uh, in that type of job, because I was there and I'd studied American politics and I was already writing about the midterm elections. You know, I was quite deeply um, ensconced there already, so that was an advantage for me. Well, it's certainly how I sort of became aware of your work. I mean, you you were very much the window for a lot of us. I mean, obviously we had access to American television, but to be, have it told through a prism of Australian eyes was very um, sort of uh, helpful, uh, I found, as a reader of your work because, um, you, you know, you were in the United States and uh, obviously you were heavily aware that it was the right time to be there to cover it in such an amazing moment in time. I mean, obviously, the, notwithstanding the Trump presidency, the COVID pandemic, the George, uh, the George Floyd prote- uh, um, death and pr- subsequent protests. What was, I mean, like, I mean, such a loaded question, what was it like? But, you know, di- di- did you just pinch yourself every day knowing that, that it was such a, a weighty responsibility on your shoulders? Uh, yeah, I think when you're in the middle of it, you're just living moment to moment. Mm. It's probably best not to reflect on it much. I mean, yeah, things were already very, just the nature of the Trump presidency, very intense with the pretty chaotic way he operated in terms of tweeting at all hours of the day and firing people suddenly. One of the things of the foreign correspondent is you're working in a different time zone. Uh, So I would do a lot of work late at night because that's uh, the morning and afternoon Australian time. So I would get used to working p- well past midnight into the early hours often to cover Trump because that was the you know, newspaper deadline. Uh, but then in 2020, yeah, things really did. Uh, I thought it was going to be a year completely focused on the election. You know, I had, a, I'd been mapping out a plan in my brain for years about the primaries and where you will go and the campaign and the conventions that happen, Mm. these traditions that happen every year. And then it was completely different to what I expected Mm. because of the pandemic. And yeah, then as you say, the Black Lives Matter 
protests. And yeah, I did have a, a moment with the pandemic where I thought, well, yeah, you're not getting the election that you planned. You could tell that a lot of the in-person events weren't going to happen, mm. uh, that it was going to be different. But it's like, well, this is a historic election. It's perhaps quite unique. There might never be a, a one like this. Uh, you also had Trump already starting to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the result and mm. talking about fraud. You can tell it was potentially going to be a very, very tense time. And I did think to myself, well, this is the election you've got. It's very historic. It's very important. Mm. You've got to embrace the moment that you're in, not the election that you thought you were going to have. You remained in the United States after the election and you were there in Washington around January 6th. What was that yes. like? Tell me. Yes. Uh, it was a very, uh, very interesting day because I'd been up late the previous night uh, reporting on the Senate election results from Georgia, which was a significant story at the time because the Democrats took control of the Senate and it was clear they were going to be able to achieve a lot more of the, the, their policy agenda than they thought they were. So that was a big thing. And this was the day that the election results were going to be certified by Congress. It's usually a pretty pro forma exercise, uh, but it wasn't like that this time around. Uh, yeah, there was a huge protest down around the Congress building at the National Mall. So I headed down. No one knew what was going to happen. Right. There had been there had been whispers about whether this could be whether there could be danger in some way, but to be honest, I wasn't necessarily expecting a lot of that because having been to a lot of Trump rallies and events, they were always pretty peaceful. You know, people would shout things about the media or Hillary Clinton or whatnot, but then they would take their flags and they would go home. And I thought that's what would happen this day, particularly given the assumption that. Congress was highly secure. I've mm. been there a lot of times. It's like going into an airport. Yes. Uh, I thought it's a very fortified place. And the ease with which the protesters were able to get in was shocking. So, yeah, I was speaking to people. but And it was clear that even in the months between the election and uh, the day of the certification, you know, people had been incredibly radicalized by the lies really they'd heard about the result, you know, convinced that convinced genuinely that this election had been stolen, right. which there was no evidence for, you know, speaking to the supporters in the crowd, that level of anger and despair they felt about the nation was pretty profound. So you can see how it spilled over. So are into- you, did you pick that up on the day or were you just of the belief that this is just sour grapes and that they will, from your experiences, pack up their flags and leave? Or was there a sense that, no, the fore- there is foreboding now? Like, did anyone get yeah. a sense of it or was it after the fact? Uh, no, I thought I was speaking to them, and I don't know what happened to a lot of the people I was speaking to, you know, how close, it was also how close you got to the building, whether they stormed in. But, uh, yeah, speaking to people, there, I did get the sense of, wow, how seriously, you know, these people had traveled for eight hours, some of them from across the other side of the country. They come from places like New Mexico to be there in Washington on, on that day. And they were, their language they were using, which was that we need to fight this. And, you know, if there has to be violence, then that's what has to happen. There's 
something bigger is at stake. Yeah, it was quite extreme language. So you could tell that something bad could happen. Uh, but kind of the flaws in the security that allowed people to get in so easily, that's the thing I don't think anyone should call the lack of preparation from the security services Absolutely. and the police. Absolutely. Just on that, when you were uh, covering um, what you could of the campaign, uh, you know, trail the hustings, and there were sort of dribs and drabs of, of uh, attempted uh, conventions and oh, – sorry, not conventions, but rallies – did you, when you moved through, you know, areas like Mississippi and, and, and places where, where there was a sort of a pro-Trump stance as opposed to the Western East Coasts, did you get a sense as a journalist, uh, and in, in particular maybe a foreign journalist, did you feel unsafe at any, other, at any stage throughout the campaign? No, it was interesting. I think in a way it was a good thing that there was less of a formal campaign because it allowed you to be more self-directed and travel around and do your own thing on your own pace. I mean, Trump, by the end, was really ramping up his rallies. He was doing several a day. By the end of the campaign, he was doing five or six a day. And this was pre-vaccine when people were not supposed to be gathering en masse. So that did become a thing. Biden was incredibly cautious. He wasn't doing anything like that. But, you know, for most of the campaign, it gave you a bit more freedom to go to the places you wanted to go to and speak to people without the structure of a very choreographed campaign around you. Uh, so I didn't feel unsafe. It was definitely, there was the COVID issue. I just decided, you know, to travel. I wasn't going to miss out. I'd try and wear a mask and keep distance as well as I could to not get COVID during the campaign, which I didn't as far as I know. But that was the, main thing at the Trump rallies uh, and Trump events. You know, no, often they were quite positive for the people who were there. It was often quite a joyful thing. Mm. They were very happy to be surrounded by people who thought just like they did. Mm. Yeah. Have you been back to the United States since the uh, since that time, since January 6th at least? Uh, yeah, I did the all of last year and I came back to Australia around at the start of December. So, yeah, very different in that last year than the one before on many levels in terms of, you know, the vaccine rollout there was quicker than the rollout in Australia. So life started coming back to something resembling normal in terms of uh, uh, socialising and life in Washington, you know, events that have basically been put on hold for so long. And just the Biden era being so different from the Trump era mm. Uh, in terms of him being a much less uh, present uh, figure, much less in the headlines, doing much fewer news conferences, being a more conventional uh, president was a big change in the way everyone in America, not everyone, but, you know, if ordinary people had been so plugged into politics and mobilised and activated by the Trump era, that changed a bit in uh, with Biden, you know, people started going back to their normal lives. They weren't as occupied by politics as they were before. Interesting. So, obviously, a lot of us were, um, you know, wary of your presence in the United States through your reporting, but you obviously became the story itself in June 2020, uh, the the incredible piece that you wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald, which obviously came out months later, describing your fall from a five-story 
building whilst you're attending a friend's birthday party is incredible. It's <laughs> absolutely incredible what happened to you. Uh, well, I guess, first of all, you're obviously okay. You're back up and running. Thank God you're, you're, you're still with us in one piece. Uh, how, wh- what, is, what is it like to have such an incredible near-death experience? It has been funny in a way coming back to Australia and meeting people for the first time here at the office and whatnot, and that is the thing. I forget that that's the thing that they're going to know about you, first of all, and I have been joking that I need I need to do something else big and dramatic in my life that <laughs> is more significant than falling off a building and surviving because that is something that people remember from the time. Yeah, it was a very uh, intense, thing at, at the time yes. uh yeah going to a friend's birthday and then just uh you know uh thinking i was going to take a look at the view from the other side of the building and falling down through this narrow uh, air shaft in to the ground uh yeah and it was in june so the election wasn't that far away the election was in november so it was pretty soon after i regained uh, not so much consciousness, you know, as soon as the painkillers, the, the serious pain medication that was on started coming off in the hospital bed, mm. I was thinking about how I get back to cover the election and okay. get back to working. Uh, and yeah, uh, my dad came over from Australia for a month to look after me. This was at the height of COVID. You, know, you weren't allowed to have visitors at the hospital. No one could come and see you. And a Obviously, the international borders were closed, so I mm. hadn't seen my family for a long time. So, yeah, he came in. I was essentially my nurse. I couldn't really do anything in terms of I couldn't reach for a plate or could, could barely uh, cut up my food, really, for mm. a while. Mm. And, yeah, then it was amazing that with uh, physical therapy and just the natural healing of the body, yeah, it came back uh, pretty much to normal, just with a bit amazing. of a dodgy left arm now that I wouldn't be able to lift a lot of weight, but that's the only thing left. Right, right. That is such mm. an incredible, I mean, thank heavens, you know, I mean, it, it, I just, your piece in the Herald was so, I mean, it just went viral, uh, the, the the account, and I, I'll put the link in the line, in the line notes because, you know, you, you can't summarise that in a, in a question or an interview. It, you just, it's there, it's on the, it's on the page, you know, everything mm. that you went through. Um, but I just want to ask, it, it, what was, I mean, was there some sort of garbage thing that you landed on, just like cushioning? Like how, what softened the blow? Like, Yes, yes. So this was something that I essentially had to go back and investigate a little bit and work out what had happened. But the key things were, for no particular reason, this was just a dead space really next to somebody's. Uh, apartment sure. that happened to put there uh, some planks of wood were there and also uh, uh, a plastic milk crate was there um, so that I completely crushed that by falling on of it. Course. But I think just a few, say four or five planks of wood and this uh, plastic milk crate, just falling on those cushioned my fall enough Rather than just falling on the hard brick ground, I do. I think that's why 
I survived otherwise. Oh and also just the way I, I spoke to some experts about this after for the good weekend piece, you know, it's also just the luck of how you fall. You know, I essentially fell on really hard onto my left shoulder and that side of my body, but, you know, my head wasn't impacted in any way. Oh. My legs weren't impacted in any way. I just kind of jammed into a corner. Obviously, if you'd fallen at a different angle, then it would have been a different outcome. Thank God, you know, obviously. So it's really just luck. Oh, you're meant to be here. I mean, honestly, you're meant to continue the work straight on the campaign six months later. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. Um, I just wanted to finish up, you know, you've, you've such a such a young journalist, such a storied career already. You've been in such amazing um, scenarios, situations. You've covered a very important piece of world history. What are you hungry for next? You've you've done so much so young. What, what what's what's what are you doing now? And what do you hope to do in the next five ten years? What's going on? Yeah, I am really excited in the short term. It, having been away for four and a half years, mm. to come back and get a, back in touch now with Australia, yeah. uh, I found it really exciting uh, to know what's going on here again. So, uh, going into election campaign, I'll be covering. That, I've got a big focus on my role now on multicultural uh, communities and the changing nature of Australia. So I'm trying to apply some of what I learned as a foreign correspondent into reporting here, you know, to go into places with the fresh eyes that you would take to another country, to even, even parts of Sydney, you know, are completely different to the other. So I'm trying to use some of that perspective uh, in my job here. And yeah, I just really want to keep writing. I want to write longer pieces. I'd love to, uh, I'd love to, you know, get into even writing book, a book or something one day. Um, but yeah, in the short term, I'm very keen to keep working here at the Herald and yeah, finding out good stories about Australia. Great. And will you ever become a foreign correspondent again? I think I would, I would love to actually. I mean, there is a reason why, you tend to not do it forever because you do want to keep a freshness of perspective and, you know, still retain connections to your home country, you know, rather than becoming too used to where you are. Um, there's definitely a reason why people tend to move around, say, three or four-year terms that you get. There's, there's a reason for that. Uh, no, I would love to. It's such a, a fun, you know, the idea of, being out there on your own, really doing it and covering a whole country or continent is kind of intimidating, but it's also very uh, exciting to have that level of freedom that you can get by being a foreign correspondent uh, is, is pretty intoxicating. So, yeah, I definitely would love to do it again. Well, that's fantastic. Matthew, uh, it was just a real pleasure talking to you. You know, I've obviously been aware of your work and, um, you know, wanted to highlight uh, everything that you've been in, you know, all the scenarios that you've been in, uh, the good and the bad in terms of your, your work overseas. It's great to have the chance to talk to you. Big fan of your writing and I'm looking forward to your writing in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. A pleasure to be here. 